welcome our pastor, Mike Christmas. to hold two things at once. Oh, this is rough. Good thing I'm not chewing gum. All right. We've been doing a study in the book of uh, the Hebrews together. The question that we're looking at is the question that permeates the whole book, and it's this. If God loves us so much, why is life so hard? Or another way of phrasing it is, why is it so difficult to be a Christian? And so the, the answer that the writer gives over and over again is he just says, let's look at Jesus. And, and instead of looking at our pain or looking at our suffering or looking at how difficult things are, he just says, fix your eyes on Christ. And then he begins to unpack and to unfold for us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you and how it applies to you. So this is somewhat of a, a lengthy passage. It's a passage about how to enter into rest. Matter of fact, in this passage, if you've counted, you'll see the, the word rest is there 11 times. So you can tell that the big idea of the passage is rest. We, we like to read out loud God's word here. We read it together as a church. So it's on your bulletin. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. When you see the word rest, don't rest. Keep reading. All right, so we're going to read together God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, were foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore... ...so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give account. Now, this series of, I would call them arguments or, or, or explanations that the writer gives to his listeners are intended for a group of people who live in an urban setting. They live in a very impopulated cities. Their, their culture is very pluralistic in the sense that there are many religions, there are many philosophies. And these Christians are living as a minority. Uh, people do not uh, in any way respect or even believe the, the Christian God or the Christian faith. And so because of that, they're being marginalized. And in many cases, they're actually being persecuted and even tortured. The writer here is actually dealing with a period of persecution where many of these Christians who were part of the church actually went to prison for their faith. Others chose not to go to prison, but instead decided to renounce their faith and to go back either to their old religion, particularly to go back to the, the rituals of the Jewish faith. Then when the persecution was over, they started coming back. And so you have this incredibly confusing atmosphere in the church, because you have those who suffered for the sake of Christ, you have those who left the faith for their own comfort, and now they're all back in church together. And it's not getting any easier, and there's a threat that they're going to be marginalized and actually imprisoned again. So part of what this passage is about is that the people are fatigued. They're tired. They're weary. The fight has been long. The fight has been hard. And so the writer is talking here about a promise and an invitation for rest. And he, he makes this contrast, and it's a really powerful contrast, between Moses and Jesus. And he declares them both to have a title that comes from God, and he calls Jesus the chief apostle, and he calls Moses an apostle of God. An apostle simply in this case means someone who has a, a mission that they've been commissioned by an authority, in this case God himself, and the mission is to lead the people home, to help the people find their home. And what this writer says is there was a promised rest for the people of God that Moses was to lead them out of bondage, out of their slavery, out of Egypt, and to lead them in to their own promised home. And what he says, he does not diminish the greatness of Moses in any way. He, there's no way that you cannot see that Moses is one of the greatest leaders who's ever lived. And yet what he says is, as great as Moses was, he was not able to complete his task. And then, see, when he speaks to these believers, some who have maybe drifted back, some who have gone back, he says to them, Jesus is the only apostle who completes the task, who makes it to where he not only establishes a home of rest for us, but he leads us into that place as we're in union with him. And the, the writer here, what he... What he makes clear is something that's true of all, for all time. That there is a danger as you live in this world and you 
You're distracted by the things of this world. You're tempted by the, the things of this world. That it is very easy to start shutting off the voice of God. Especially, there are some of us maybe who don't even believe God speaks to us. And yet, I would say to you that not only is the Holy Spirit speaking to you every day, He's speaking to you every minute of every day. And what's going on is many of us, we're not listening. How loud our pain is, how loud our temptations are, how loud the distractions are, all of the ways that we just try to survive. One of the things that we do is we shut out the voice of the Lord. And what he says in this passage is this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that people have always had. And what happens when you resist the voice of the Lord, when you resist his gentle nudging, when you resist his word in your ear, your heart becomes hardened and you begin to drift. And he explains in this, it's really a pointing back to the invitation that Jesus himself made to us in Matthew where he says, this promise of finding home, this promise of rest still exists. It still exists for you and me. Jesus reiterates this promise of rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, one of the things that, that, that can help you understand whether you've entered into Jesus' rest or you're allowing Jesus' rest is are you carrying burdens that are creating anxiety? Because if his yoke is easy and his burden's light, you've taken up a burden that's not yours. Because you're anxious. You're overwhelmed by an outcome that you can neither control nor do you have the right to control. Are you angry? Well, if you're angry, you've taken up a burden that's not light and you put on yourself a yoke that is not easy. So it's not Jesus' yoke and it's not Jesus' burden. I mean, it's really not that hard to begin to look at your heart and look at your life and say, is it quiet inside my head? Do I have inner peace? Do I have a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment? That's what rest is. Now, rest is important. Eleven times in one chapter, he writes about rest, so it's pretty important. But notice how important it is. In Psalm 95, he hearkens back again to the Exodus and that time in the wilderness. And it says, God got so angry at the disobedience of his people. And see, when it uses the word wrath or it uses the word anger, it's saying that God's about to do the most difficult thing to them. Or he's about to punish them in a way that is extreme. So here's the extreme punishment of the Lord. He says, You will never enter into my rest. So in other words, not being able to rest is an extreme form of punishment. All right, are you getting it? I know you're smarter than that. Come on. Not being able to rest. Restlessness is an extreme form of punishment. In one way, this is one of the ways that... that the Bible expresses what hell will be. Hell will be eternal restlessness. 
Never able to find peace. Never able to find satisfaction. Always being driven by more. You guys got really quiet on that one. (laughs) There's a writer for the New York Times um, that uh, has been writing about Sabbath. And uh, she tells the story of how she be, you know, moved to New York, became a typical kind of driven professional career person, and uh, started realizing something as she had left behind the intentional Sabbath of her religious upbringing, and she began to just you know, go to movies and have uh, lunch out with friends and all that. And she writes this, and this was probably written about five years ago or so. She said, about a decade ago, I developed a full-blown weekend disorder of my own. Perhaps because I am Jewish, it came on Friday nights. My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon, I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure in the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself. After a while, I got lonely and did something that as a teenager profoundly put off by my religious education I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. Here's what she says about this. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years, the Sabbath. The word Sabbath, and it's one of the aspects of rest here, but the word Sabbath simply means to cease, to stop. And so when we think about rest, many of us don't think about Sabbath, but that's exactly what this writer is talking about. He's talking about entering in to a spiritual rest as well as a physical and emotional rest. And he talks about it in more more than one level. He uses the same word, but he uses it to describe the plan that God had for you all along. Can Can I just remind you of something? We're not living in the natural order. We're living in a cursed order. We're living in a twisted. We're living in a broken order. When God comes into your life, he is attempting to restore the natural order. He's not suspending the natural order. He's restoring it. The natural order is everything that was true before the fall. Sin comes in, corrupts, mars, destroys the very image of everything that matters. And when Jesus comes into your life, he's not coming to give you more rules so that you become more of a slave. He's coming in to restore how you were actually made, to actually give you the sweet spot you were made for. It is not unusual that when someone begins to really stop resisting the Lord and begins to listen to the voice of the Lord, that eventually you will hear yourself saying involuntarily, this is what I was made for. What better, and if you're a believer today, what better testimony to God could you ever give than to say, this is what I was made for? Living your life constantly striving 
For that which you were not made for does not give glory to you or to God. And so when we look at this, we see that God had a plan for his people. Slavery in Egypt was not glorifying to God. Slavery in Egypt was something they had to be taken out of. It was a curse upon the people. And it was God who himself sent Moses to lead them out of the land of bondage and lead them to their own home. Now, some of the reasons that they didn't make it is, are not Moses' fault. As a matter of fact, what happened is as they began to go along the, the route to home, instead of acting like free men and free women, they continued to act like slaves. So they complained about the food, they complained about the, the water, they complained about how long the journey was. All the kids were asking, are we there yet? And there were no DVDs in the minivans back then, and, and so you actually had to deal with reality. And so, I mean, it, it just was, instead of gratitude, it was attitude. And so you began, you began to see that a frustration with God developed, and God, a frustration with the people. And so he declared to them that they would not enter into their arrest. But they, they didn't really understand what he was doing. What he was doing was he was bringing them out, and he's saying to them, I want you to take one day out of seven. And the reason I want you to take that day is because slaves never rest. Slaves are always on call. Slaves are always at their master's beckon. Only free people can say, I'll work six days and I'll not work the seventh. This is an act of revolution. This is an act and declaration of freedom. Come on, that's pretty good. (laughs) See, when they got to their own land, they could put limits They could put limits on how much they worked. A slave does not get to put limits. Only a free person. Only a free person can say, today I will not labor. Today I will rest. And so this was, I hope I'm getting across to you. This is the Sabbath, the rest is so beautiful because it's God's love for his people. It's his love for his creation that he says to us, I don't want you to be slaves. Now, the truth is, the Sabbath is also a realization of the dignity that he has instilled in us as human beings. That we're not just slaves under a taskmaster. Have you ever noticed, maybe, maybe some of you in here are more in tune with this, but most of us, we have a voice in our, a nagging kind of self-reproaching voice in our heads that says, you never do enough. It's never good enough. You know, you hear these words more. You hear this word better, harder. And have you ever noticed that all those errs, there's no way to quantify them? When do you know that you got to more? And what is better? Better than what? Harder? <laughs> My son uh, is a musician, and uh, he was approached. He, li- he was living in Brooklyn at the time. He was approached by a filmmaker 
to come and uh, do the soundtrack for this documentary he was doing. So my son wrote all the, the songs and the music, and he and his band performed it and recorded it. And uh, they took it to the producer, and the producer looked at him and said, this is great, but can you make it 20% more awesome? How do you figure that out? <laughs> now, my son was smart. He figured out what they meant, and he did it, and they went, that's what we wanted. But I would have sat there and punched the guy, you know? <laughs> How do I figure out what 20% more awesome is? Because it's in his head. That's a little, are you tracking with me on this? It's a little bit the way we're living in our society is somebody else is telling you what awesome is. Give me 20% more. 20% of what? Harder, better. That's slavery. It's oppression. It's not freedom. One of my favorite writers on this is a rabbi by the name of Abraham Heschel. wrote a fantastic book called The Sabbath. This is kind of a a heady quote that I'm going to read to you, and I'm I'm going to try to explain it a little bit before we look at it. He said this, God has given us a mandate that six days you are to dominate the space where you live or the realm in which you live. But he says, on the seventh day, you are called to dominate time. So what happens to most of us is we get so caught up in dominating space, we actually allow time to dominate us. And the Sabbath is a way of entering into God's rest spiritually and and emotionally and physically. Entering into that rest is a way that we say, for this day, space will not dominate me. And here's how he explains it. He says, to gain control. That's the idea of trying to dominate your world. To gain control of the world of space is certainly one of our tasks. The danger begins when in gaining power in the realm of space, that's you trying to acquire things, trying to succeed, all of that kind of thing, we usually forfeit all our aspirations in the realm of time. Notice what Ashley said even before she gave the announcements. April's already gone. May is here. Right? It went really fast. We lost track of time, we say sometimes. There is a realm of time where the goal, this is God's goal, is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space, becomes our sole concern. I, I hope you're a little convicted. Because in a way, what's happening here is instead of being free men and women, you are answering to the voice of a taskmaster. And that taskmaster is not God. He has another, I just love how he writes. He says, gallantly, ceaselessly, quietly, man must fight for inner liberty to remain independent of the enslavement of the material world. Inner liberty depends on being exempt from domination of things as well as from domination of people. There are many who have acquired a high degree of political and social liberty, but only very few are not enslaved to things. This is our constant problem, how to live with people and remain free, how to live with things and remain independent. That's a pretty powerful word, right? 
See, what he's explaining is he's explaining why God gave the Sabbath. Because he knows how easy it is to drift. And he knows how easy it is to start hardening your heart. So there's an aspect of rest that was about taking us from being worthless, materialistic, just property of somebody, or just the slaves of something. And one of the issues that we all have to reckon with is every culture, every season, every time has oppression in it. There is no place on earth where external freedom can't also find itself in internal slavery. And so what the Sabbath does is it says, no matter what everybody else said about you for six days, who you are is who God says you are. And you're not a slave. You are a free man. You're a free woman. You are a child of God. It's very powerful when you start to realize there's this other level of rest that the writer says here. And it's, it's, it's characterized by the biblical uh, description that says, on the seventh day, God rested. Now, any of you that know anything about God, God was not tired. <laughs> you know, some of us in here, you give us a hammer, we'll hammer for a little while, and then we'll take a 30-minute break, you know. Uh, but God is not tired. So why is it that he chose to rest? Well, it's really clear in Genesis 2. He chose to rest because he was satisfied and fulfilled by what he had done. His rest was not a cessation of labor. It was a satisfaction in what he had accomplished. Listen what this rabbi had to say about this. He said, what was creation's climactic culmination? The act of stopping. Rabbi Elijah Vilna put it this way. God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we created it. The implication is clear. We could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dolls that go and go until they fall over because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to pause. But that would make us less than humans. We have to remember to stop because we have to stop to remember. Can you hear me? Do you know what's happening to most of us? As soon as we finish one thing, we're on to the next. We barely get to celebrate before we are under the pile of demands once again. God set a pattern In the cosmos, he set it in the fabric of the atoms that make up your body that you have to be able to celebrate, that you have to be able to give meaning to what you do. If you don't give meaning to it, you will become hardened. You will become someone who is like a wind-up doll that just goes till you can't go anymore. Now, let me take this a step further. This same, this is the writer from the New York Times. She's actually written a book on the Sabbath. That's good. She goes, not even our group leisure activities can do for us what Sabbath rituals could once be counted on to do. Religious rituals do not exist simply to promote togetherness. They are theater. They are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are, 
without our even quite noticing that they are doing so. One defining feature of religious rituals, in fact, is that we often perform them for years before we come to understand what they mean. This is why ministers and rabbis are famously unsympathetic when congregants complain that worship services or holiday rites feel meaningless. The story told by the Sabbath is that of creation. We rest because God rested on the seventh day. What leads from God to humankind is the notion of a matio dei, the imitation of God. In other words, we rest in order to honor the divine in us, to remind ourselves that there is more to us than just what we do during the week. See, it, a Sabbath can be ruined by those rituals as well. When those become work, when those become you're only approved if you do this or you don't do that. Please don't hear that part of it, but hear this part. The God of heaven, your creator, loves you so much that he wants after a week of you being beaten up and beaten down, after a week of people criticizing, complaining, or saying things to you that are painful or difficult or whatever it might be, he wants you to take a day and remember, I'm not who they say I am. I am who he says I am. I'm a child of God. I have worth. I have value. It's not in my checkbook. It's not in my bank account. It's not in my title. It's who I am in my identity with Christ. And the idea is that at least one day out of the seven, you have to pivot, we call it. You have to look around, find meaning in what you're doing, reframe it, refresh it, and then say, I've got a whole new energy to start the week. And without that, you become a drone. You become a slave. And you're constantly trying to prove yourself to people who themselves are trying to prove themselves. Well, there's an even deeper need then that this points to, and that is when we talk about rest, when Jesus here talks about rest, he's actually talking about coming to a place of true safety, true security, of true worth and value where you begin to realize this is the source of my rest. He's the source of my rest. And he, he explains in this passage that what Jesus is offering in the good news of the gospel is a rest that those children who wandered in the wilderness never found. It's a rest that still exists, he said, because the psalmist was still talking about it hundreds of years later in Psalm 95. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying that the real rest that all of us were looking for was not a land, it wasn't a day, it was a person. And that the only one who can truly settle the issue of your worth, of your value, of your your freedom from rejection and your freedom from fear, the only one who can settle the restlessness and the noise and the hardness and the coldness of your soul, the only one that can do that is Jesus. And the offer that the writer is saying is an offer whether you've been religious your whole life or you've tried to be moral or good your whole life, the offer is for you to realize that that insecurity, that lack of confidence, that lack of self-esteem, all that stuff that makes you 
chase after, please let me prove that I have worth. All that stuff that makes you chase after things and say, let me have this title, then finally I'll feel like I'm somebody. Or run after certain fashion and clothes so you can say, see, I have value. What we don't realize is that what's being pointed to here in many ways is that whole Garden of Eden thing. See, there was this really interesting thing that he says in verse 13, he says, we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Anytime the Bible talks about being naked and exposed like this, it immediately should take your mind back to the Garden of Eden. Because it was there, and it was this real incredible declaration or description where it says they were naked and unashamed. In other words, they had nothing to hide. There were no secrets. There was no sickness in their secrets. There was no shame that they were afraid that somebody else might find out. They didn't have to prove themselves until they sinned against God. Until they said, we're going to be independent. We're going to be the masters of our own destiny. We're going, to be, we're going to be equal to God. We're going to live independently. And when they did that, suddenly their eyes were open and they go, you're naked. You, well, you're naked. <laughs> and then they're like, well, this is probably the first time they understood nakedness. And immediately they, they felt fear. They felt shame. And when you feel fear and you feel shame, your first reaction is, how do I hide it? How do I cover it up? So they found fig leaves. Now, Modern-day fig leaves, workaholism. I mean, those of you who have wrestled with substances, those of you who have wrestled with, with alcohol, and in many ways our society doesn't say, good job, you're an alcoholic. But our society says, man, you are an overachiever. Good work. Way to go. You, you work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You're our best employee. So here's a sickness, a fig leaf, a chance, a, a, a hope that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove that I have worth. I, I had a friend who used to say, I get there before the boss, I leave after the boss. They never see me where I'm not working. I was like, you're a slave. You're a slave to a boss who's probably as fickle as you are. It's a fig leaf. Now, I'm not through with the fig leaves. There's another one, and we may be having, whether you know it or not, there's, there's, there, might be a, there might be a meeting going on right now. There's a Workaholics Anonymous in the groups here, and then there's also Perfectionist Anonymous here. You see, perfectionism is a fig leaf. I'll tell you why. It's a very simple thing to expose. I've never found a perfectionist who was perfect. So the very thing that they say that they're trying to achieve is the very thing they never achieve, so it's nothing more than a fig leaf. But it is a source of unrest. It is a source of restlessness. You tell a perfectionist they did a good job, they won't say thank you. They'll say it could have been better. So the soul is hardened you tell a perfectionist, oh, you look so pretty today. Oh, I don't. These are my worst makeup ever, you know. <laughs> Their soul is hardened. That's not modesty. It's not humility. It's hardness of heart. If I'm not perfect, then I can't accept it. But I'm hovering the shame 
where I know I'm not perfect. So I, I'm going to get the jump on you before you can see how imperfect I am. You see, we live in a world that's naked and ashamed. But we try to cover it up with flimsy little things that don't even satisfy us, that don't even fulfill us. And what this passage says is Jesus is saying, let go of the fig leaf. Let me prove myself to you. Let me show you what I've done for you. The invitation, I think today, is first and foremost for any of you who just have fig leaves and who don't have rest. Can you understand that the, the, one of the worst punishments in your life is to live your life without ever being able to rest? But there's a second, there's a second call here. And... Uh, for me, it's a pretty vulnerable thing that I want to share with you. It's a pretty personal kind of thing. Notice what it says here, that the, that the word of God is a double-edged sword. Okay? Isn't that funny? When you were reading this, did you notice we were talking about rest and we were talking about this, and all of a sudden it comes up a sword. Sounds more like war than rest. See, if you're reading this, you're going, why is this verse in here? Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, people pull this verse out and never say it in context. Because it's a powerful verse all by itself. And and what does it mean? It means this. It means that you and I, who are believers, who have come to taste and experience the Spirit of God, that we have two possible sources for our life. The one source is the source that is been the default setting of our lives for our whole lives. And that source is our own soul. See, your soul is your mind. It's the way you think. It's your, your heart, your emotions. It's your, it's your will and your choices. And there's a strength in there in which by willpower or by discipline or other things, you can try to be a better person. You can try to do more. But the problem is God knows what you look like naked. And he knows willpower is about you proving yourself. He knows that you trying to muster up your heart and passion and do all this stuff, this is all about you. You can fool us. You can say you're fine. You can say you're doing well. You can say, praise the Lord. You can do that silly thing, God is good all the time kind of nonsense. And, and you can do all that stuff and just be faking it to us when really you're going, you're not that good. God doesn't care about slogans. He wants your heart. And what this verse says, you'll never have rest till you stop hiding. And you can hide from us, but you can't hide from him. You say, oh, I'm full of faith. No, you're full of anxiety. Oh, I have so much love. Then why are you so critical? Why? Oh, I'm accepted. Why do you reject everybody else? You can't fool him. And the invitation here is to say, look, I'm sick of my restlessness. I'm sick of being tired. I'm sick of being, I'm tired of being tired. And you realize if I'm operating from my soul, I'm going to be tired for the rest of my days. The, the, the old theologians used to call it soulishness. God wants nothing of soulishness. 
because it just wears you out and beats you down. But what he wants, he wants a, a, a yielded heart to the Spirit. You realize, I'll give you an example of this. Some of you have probably done this before because we're all stupid. And you pray, oh God, give me patience. And immediately, circumstances came up in which you needed patience. And you're like, why didn't you give me patience? He goes, I'm showing you, you don't have any. What you're really praying is, God, give me willpower. Make me more powerful. And you're like, boy, I'm just not going to pray that anymore. I'm not going to pray for patience. Man, he just gave me all these hard, difficult things. But you missed the point. It isn't your patience. It's the Spirit of Christ in you who has all the patience of Christ. And instead of trying to will, I'm going to be patient, I'm going to be patient, which you can't do 24-7. Instead, you're appropriating the patience that has united itself with you because you are in Christ. Everything that Christ has is in you. And so it becomes a faith thing. And so when patience begins to manifest, it doesn't manifest as a work. It manifests as a fruit of your union with Christ. And guess what happens then? You don't get the glory. Christ gets the glory. Come on, that was worth the price of admission right there. Are you hearing me? All right, so that, I hear the music, so I got to speed up here. Not that it ever really affects me. <laughs> this is the advanced part, okay? God is inviting you. Some of you are listening really well right now. And the reason is the Holy Spirit is prophetically inviting you to a new season of rest. But more than that, See, out of that rest, you become more productive. Out of that rest, you become more supernatural. Out of that rest, you become more powerful. But in order for that to happen and for the things you long to see, like that song we prayed, I want to see it again. I believe I'll see it again. The mountains move. In order for that to happen, there comes a time where the sword comes in and it, he shows you you've been operating soulishly. You've been operating not out of the spirit. You need to stretch forth your neck and let everything be exposed because you can't take the baggage from the last season into the new season. You can't go into the greater power while you're still holding on to lust. And you can't go into the greater, into a sense of greater authority while you're still holding on to secrets. When I was about 36 years old, I was starting to learn about supernatural ministry. I was starting to hear from the Lord. I was starting to see people get delivered. I saw miracles of healing start happening. And as soon as it happened, the Lord put the sword. Because see, I'd, I'd hidden all my secrets. I never told anybody of my struggles sexually or my, my immorality or my lust or my temptation or any of these things. I never told Lisa. I never told anybody. And I, I was about to fall apart from my secrets because the closer I walked in the Lord and the more I encountered the work of the enemy, the enemy knows your secrets. So I'm trying to help people get delivered while I'm hiding my own secrets. And the Lord said to me through this, he said, here comes the sword. And when the sword came, instead of resisting and running away, 
I so wanted what he was offering me that I went and found four trusted friends. Actually, Lisa made me go find four trusted friends. Let me just say it that way. She forced me to go and do this. But once I got there, I just said, here it is. And what, I did a thing that we call a whole life confession. And everything that I'd never let anyone else know. And the reason I didn't let them know is I had heard a voice saying, if they know this about you, they will never love you. If they know this about you, they will realize what a horrible, awful person you are. But see, this verse says that until you get that kind of nakedness, until you get that kind of exposure, you cannot rest. Do you know why you cannot rest? Because Satan will tweak those secrets every time you start to advance. And so what I did is I spilled it all out. I, yeah, it was horrible. It was awful feeling as I had to tell them, I struggle with this. I did these things. I have these problems. I have these tendencies. But you know what happened? Instead of loving me less, they loved me more. And here's the deal. They had been loving a fake. So I knew they didn't love me because they loved the fake. But from that moment on, they loved me knowing who I am. Then the Lord went a little deeper. He said, now you've got to spill it all with Lisa. Because you can't live in partnership and ministry with her while she doesn't know who you are. I said, oh, God, she's going to divorce me. You know, she's never going to want to see me again. But he said, go. Again, it's a sword, notice. So I went to her and I said, here it is. Here's all the stuff. And she looked at me and she said, you are not the man I thought you were. But she chose to love the man I am instead of the man that I was presenting myself to be. And what happened is that made a bond between us and it brought unconditional love into our marriage so that there are no six secrets between us anymore. And there's no place that the enemy can create restlessness because we've already given ourselves to rest. It was difficult for me not to be the person she had idolized and to actually be the loser that I felt like I was. But by her acceptance and love, it lifted this loser up into victory. Am I making, I mean, I feel very vulnerable saying these things to you. But that's what that verse means. And there might be over these last few weeks where you felt like a sword was piercing you. Do not resist it. It is God's invitation into rest that will then create for you an incredible impact and effectiveness and fruitfulness in your life. See, I love the idea of one day of, in seven of resting and worshiping and all, but that's not really what this is about. This is about seven days a week, 24 hours a day, finding your home and living from there. So that everything you do is flowing out of this, this incredible source of the knowledge of the love of God through Christ Jesus. Will you stand with me? Can we start with, uh, can we start with just one thing together? Would you... Whether it's totally your issue or not, I have a feeling it's most of our issue. But could we renounce workaholism and perfectionism and just see them as the fig leaves that they are, that they're not going to satisfy? And the truth is, friends, 
you know even going on vacation doesn't take it away from you. Most of us come back from vacation saying we have to go to work so we can rest. Would you say this with me? I renounce. I forsake any dependency on workaholism or perfectionism to prove that I have worth, that I have value, that I'm lovable, that I'm safe, or that I'm secure. My security is in Christ. My rest is in Christ. My worth is in Christ. Before Him I am exposed. Nothing is hidden. And I won't hide. Can you let that come in today? I mean, He already knows. It's kind of stupid for us to hide. Our hiding shows more about us than Him. But I am convinced. I'm convinced today. There are some of you, I mean, I know it's somewhat of a complicated message. But in other words, it's a very simple one. Everything you've been looking for is in Jesus. He leads you to the promised land. He gives you dignity. He says, you're in my image. I mean, how how much more dignity can there be than to be in the image of the Son of God? I don't care what anybody else says about me. That's who I am. Isn't that who you are? My checkbook can't make me that. He says, I'm not a slave. I get to set limits on even how much I work, which means I can say yes to people and no to people and still have value and worth. But more than anything else, I don't have to have secrets anymore. I have never seen more rest in my life when I realized there were no more secrets to exploit. The good news of Jesus Christ is it's for broken people. It's for people who are twisted. It's for people who realize how bankrupt they are. It's for people who lust. It's for people who are ambitious and realize it's vain. It's for people who have lied, stolen. But it's for people who realize they need rest. Come unto me, Jesus says. Lord, we seal what you're doing today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you take a minute and hug a few people and spread some of that uh, rest and love and acceptance around today?